Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 as we continue working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, We'll be in verses 42 through 47, and as we have read so far, we saw how Jesus spent a bit of time with his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. And one of the things that was important during this period of time is that Jesus presented himself through many proofs to his followers that he was indeed alive. He instructed them uh, to wait in Jerusalem until they would receive the Holy Spirit, um, and they did. They waited in Jerusalem, and last week we read about how the first followers of Jesus Christ, the manner in which they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, Subsequently, a a crowd gathered. Peter um, presented an argument concerning Jesus as the Messiah, and particularly that the Messiah would suffer but be raised from the grave. And in the course of Peter preaching and the other disciples uh, arguing and speaking in languages that they did not know, this was the way the Spirit manifested itself uh, among them, 3,000 people were saved. And so we saw conversion, we saw baptism, and this week we're going to see immersion into the life of a community. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we get a model of the ideal representation of the coming kingdom in all of its fullness. Uh, So let's read verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having found favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we get this picture of the, the, the community that is forming around the belief that by having faith in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. They've been given the Holy Spirit. And this is just a too good to be true kind of picture, isn't it? And if you just step back and look at it, they're devoting themselves to God's word. They have a strong devotion to each other. There is unity and harmony. God is performing many signs and wonders among them. And the Lord is adding to their number day by day. And they have found favor with all the people. In this short passage that we we look at this morning... There's uh, some fundamentally important elements that are relevant to us today and the nature of our corporate uh, gathering and relationship. Uh, In this passage, we see really four kind of categorical things that the followers, first followers of Jesus Christ were devoted to. The first one was they were devoted to what? Uh, the first thing we read, they definitely were devoted to each other. The first thing that we see is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, what the apostles taught um, is probably more than what we have 
recorded, but it certainly involved the teaching of Jesus Christ. It certainly involved the Old Testament, and much of it wrestled with, as we'll see through the book of Acts, much of it wrestled with, what do we do now? It's just interesting to think, right, that this is a time in history before, uh, well, the fullness of of God's word was written and recorded. So a lot of it was the wondering and the wrestling and asking questions. And as we'll see through the book of Acts, one of the biggest questions they had is, what do we do with the Gentiles? So first and foremost, we see here that there was a devotion to teaching. I do not think it's wrong for us to say that there was a devotion to God's word. The second thing that we see is there is a devotion to the fellowship. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in a, um, you know, a Southern Baptist church, but Southern Baptist church typically have the fellowship hall, right? And this is where you'll do the, the wedding showers and you'll do the potlucks afterwards and fellowship kind of just um, in your mind becomes just hanging out. Well, that's not, I mean, yes, that is what fellowship is, part of it. It is hanging out, but it is much richer than that and w- much more meaningful, that koinonia, that's the Greek word for, she- for fellowship, uh, it really captures the essence of harmony created by shared purpose and working together. It, it means a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. And isn't that what really the, I think if you were to, what stands out most from this passage, it would be the idea of sharing. So when someone responded, what do, you see, what, what do we see here first? Yeah, first, and maybe in, uh, what just stands off the pages, there's this devotion to each other. There is this sharing. And what do they share here? They share meals. They share possessions. Uh, it says they have all things in common. So there was a strong devotion to this, this uh, shared interests, and this community. We also see that there was a devotion to, um, well, there's the regular occurrence of breaking bread. Now, this is probably both a reference to common meals that were shared together at the expense of the one who could afford it um, on a literal, on a literary level, not literal, on a literary level, This likely alludes to the Lord's Supper. And it's actually very possible that there was not a distinction between the two in many early church traditions and practices. That the act of coming together to share a meal was partaking of the Lord's Supper. And they would do this in remembrance of them, of Jesus Christ. It's very likely that it wasn't separated between the two. And if you look at 1 Corinthians, when Paul is coming down hard on the Corinthians for um, how they are treating the Lord's Supper, that gives indication that that's likely what was happening because it was simply the Lord's Supper was simply becoming a meal and certain people were being excluded from this. And so anyways, it's likely the case that when we read the breaking of bread, it could be a reference to something that is maybe similar to what we're doing. Or it is just as likely, I think, that it refers to a common meal that was shared together. And they would do, when in doing this, they would meet together, break bread together, and they would do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. There was also a strong devotion to prayer. 
And in reflecting on this week's uh, passage, uh, and I would ask you to do the same thing, um, where is the element of corporate prayer in your life? Is it something that you partake of regularly? Um, it, it, I think it's a bit of a weakness for us at Crosspoint. One of our uh, priorities is that in small groups, uh, there's a time to get together and, and spend a lot of time in prayer. But I know what ends up happening often when we get together. We end up talking a good bit, and then we'll do some food, and then we'll get to the Bible study, and prayer becomes the thing that is transitionary. It's the thing we do to start. It's the thing we do to end. It's the thing we do to move from one song to the next, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not calling you out. I'm just saying that uh, in church life, prayer becomes kind of the token thing. And it's something that we as a church need to, uh, I, I think, improve upon. But last, and just, to, and just looking at the big picture before we, we kind of break it apart a little bit more. This resulted in them having favor with all the people. And we can understand why, right? This, the, the, the community as described to us is just this beautiful thing. People are sharing their possessions to make sure nobody's without need. They're eating together regularly. They're praying regularly. They're breaking bread in the remembrance of Jesus Christ. There's a commitment to teaching and God's word. There's signs and wonders being performed among them. They're going to the temple together, and many people are coming to know the Lord. I mean, it's real easy to see how, um, why they would find a lot of favor with all the people. One thing I do think we need to, to point out, lest we misunderstand or, or, or apply that understanding, apply that truth wrongly. If you read the book of Acts in big chunks, right, like I asked, if you could just read it in one sitting. Does the favor with the people last? Well, not all people. Real quickly, we're going to see Stephen stoned. We're going to see mass persecution break out. We're going to see all of the trials that the apostle Paul went through. We're going to see Peter and John imprisoned. We're going to see a lot of hardship come their way. And so we, we just need to be careful to see, uh, to not go too far with this uh, understanding that they found favor with all their people. Because sometimes we can have this naive view of church life that if we just do what we're supposed to do, everybody's going to, everything's going to get along and everybody's going to love us. No, there's a, there's a component to our faith and the preaching of the gospel that is by its very nature offensive to many, and we will be hated for it. And the Christian life isn't just this good, because we still live in a fallen world, and we eagerly await the coming of Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. But the church is intended to be a little taste of what that coming reality is going to be like. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, again, we get this uh, it shows a community that models the ideal representation of the eschatological kingdom that contains a devotion to God's word, to each other, and to prayer. So let me encourage you all to, well, to have a devotion to God's word and to loving God with your mind. 
There's a difference. Well, knowing and feeling are both good, and it seems to be that in church life, sometimes we tend to focus on what or the other. Perhaps you've been a part of a church that maybe had really good teaching and there was really good Bible study, but there was kind of a coldness to it. There wasn't any emotion at, at all, and that's not healthy. And, of course, many of you have probably been to churches where the teaching and the devotion to God's Word and knowing Him with His mind was an afterthought. But, man, from an emotional standpoint, it was great. The worship you know, drew you in or, or whatever, and there was this great emotional experience. Well, we have to be careful about going to one extreme or the other. If I were to say in our time today, what are we more prone to do as a church in the United States? I think we are more prone to seek out an experience rather than knowledge of who God is. And I think that is one of our temptations. We treat church as a product that we consume and we're more after an experience than anything else. And so here at Crosspoint, we, we recognize the need to love God with your mind. So devote yourselves to his word. Devote yourself to the teaching of your pastors and leaders. Devote yourself to answering, seeking out questions or answers to questions. If you have a question, you need to express it. Again, one of the problems in American Christianity, probably not just American Christianity, is there's this virtue of blind faith. Like, don't ask questions, just have faith, which is nonsense. Have a question, ask a question, seek an answer. Just yesterday, I was watching a documentary. It was titled, A Better Life. And the whole premise of the documentary is that atheists have just as good of a life as Christians do that commonly atheists hear the accusation, well, if you don't believe in God, how can you believe in anything? And if you can't believe in anything bigger than yourself, aren't you just a miserable person if there's no meaning to your life? And the whole documentary was just to show how atheists are just as happy as, as anybody else or more happy. That's kind of the heart of the documentary. But one of the interesting things that, that uh, what came out in this documentary is probably the first 30 minutes showed their deconversion stories. And a great number of them grew up in the church. And some of these are famous atheists and I have books and, and whatnot. And again, not all of them grew up in the church, but the majority of them grew up in the church. And it was remarkable how their stories were similar. And I've heard this story time and time again myself. It was around the age of 12 or 13. It's so funny how that's almost always the age. They say, I grew up in the church and it was around the age of 12 or 13 where I started to have questions. And my questions were never respected. And I was told that I just need to have faith. And it communicated the feeling that there was something wrong about me that I just couldn't believe enough. And that began the deconversion. And so my point in simply saying that a devotion to God's word is a devotion to loving God with your mind, seeking knowledge of who he is and being brave enough to look your questions in the face, not run away from them, and go get an answer for them. Again, the other thing, and probably the biggest part of this passage that stands out to us is the devotion to each other. And there's a big contrast between sharing, well, I, I want to put it this way, what the early church had versus what we struggle with today. In the early church here, the, the, the ideal picture of this community, we, we see them sharing 
Today, I think people in the church consume rather than share. They treat church like a product rather than immersing themselves in it like this. So let me encourage you to share first just yourself. Be available to people. Carve out time in your busy schedule to meet for coffee, to have a meal. That's the big thing that we saw here too, right? Share meals together. What's the big deal about sharing a meal? Have you ever thought about that? There's something about it. Um, Think about maybe like the last business meeting you had or just you're getting to know somebody for the first time. Uh, It could be a date. It could be uh, you as a a husband and wife or going out with another new couple. Uh, And maybe this is just me, but I don't think it is. What is the conversation like when you first get together and sit down at the table? Usually it's a little forced It's a little uncomfortable, and this is just normal because you don't know them, right? You don't know who they are. But almost every time I've been in this, it doesn't matter whether or not I'll become best friends with this person or what. When that food comes, and you start eating, and you start drinking, what happens? It's like everybody's shoulders go down, and the conversation comes more free. And there's just something about it that I guess there's a level of dignity that you can't maintain when you're shoving food in your mouth, that there's something vulnerable or intimate about sharing a meal together. And so this is so simple, but one of the things that may be the best thing that comes out of this sermon for you today is the encouragement and the reminder to just start eating with more people. Invite them over to your house. Make it a priority. So share meals, share yourself, share your possessions, give generously. And when you find a need, meet that need. I was never more proud of this church than, uh, I'll, I'll be as vague as I can about this, but there was a situation involving a big financial need for somebody because of a really tragic life circumstance. And it was possible that thousands of dollars were going to be needed. And where, where are we going to get thousands of dollars, like tens of thousands of dollars maybe? And so I got on the phone, called some men, let them know of the need, and there was an agreement between us that whatever it takes, we got to sell a car, we got to sell rental property, we got whatever, this need's going to be met, and the need was met. And you see that big difference, right, between consuming versus sharing? You know the studies of how many people, like, for example, and I'll just use this that don't tithe. It's a big difference. And when you are not a tither, you are a consumer. You come and you partake of all of the ministries and the blessing and the service of other people. But you do so on, on their dime. And I, I don't, I'm, you've, those of you that have been here for years, you know I don't, I don't, I'm not heavy-handed when it comes to money or tithing. There's not a dogmatic approach to that. I'm firmly convinced that the New Testament requirement is to be generous. And it stems from passages like this in Acts, that we are sharing life together. We are sharing needs together. That means we're going to be sharing our possessions. That means we're going to be sharing our money. And it's not forced That's why there's not a heavy-handedness. I'm not trying to make a guilt trip or anything like this. 
that it must be done freely according to the Spirit's work and an understanding of all good gifts come from God. And if God gives me a gift, I need to be a blessing to somebody else. You know, there are some that will use this passage to say, see, look, the Bible is pro-communism. The Bible, it's for communism. Look, they shared all their possessions. What's the big difference here between communism or socialism and what was happening here? It's the freedom, right? It's the, no one is forcing them to do this. And I will never, I will present needs, of course, but I will never tell you what to do with your money, ever. I will never tell you what percentage of your income to give, ever. I trust that as the Lord works in your life and as the Lord is generous to you, his spirit will work in you such that you will desire to be generous and to see that needs are met. So I don't know what you give, by the way, if you've ever wondered. Does Mike know if I tithe? or if I, I don't, and I don't ask. There are people that know, obviously, for reasons of just bookkeeping and year-end tax statements or whatever, but I don't know. So share. Devote yourself to God's word. Devote yourself to prayer and share. Share your time. Share yourself. Share your possessions. Share meals together. And just share in the ministry and the work of what God is doing here in this local setting. As Josiah comes, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, and the way that we do it here at Crosspoint is there is bread that has been made for us. There's gluten-free, actually, over at this table also. And uh, we break the bread, which represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us, and we dip it in the juice that represents the blood that was shed for him, and we do this to remember that our sins are forgiven by faith. According to God's grace. Yeah. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, we thank you how you love us, how you have given us your spirit, and how you have blessed us more than we deserve. May you continue to work in our lives so that we are generous and loving and willing to share and to serve. And may we do so in a way such that it draws attention, that the world will see what we are doing. And may that part of what we do grant favor with them. And as we are granted that favor, let us be bold to preach the gospel no matter what it means. We ask and we believe and we trust that as we devote ourselves to you, to prayer, to your word, and to each other, Father, that you will use this, your spirit and your word, to draw many people to yourself. And we pray for that, and we look forward to seeing that become a reality.